Welcome to the Ad Watchers, a podcast brought to you by the National Advertising Division of BBB National Programs. We're a team of attorneys with 50 years of experience investigating and resolving disputes over the truthfulness and accuracy of national advertising campaigns. I'm Hal Hodes. And I'm Latoya Sutton. To make sure advertisers can back up what they're telling consumers, we don't just take ads at face value. We put them to the test. Why? Because advertising law is simple. It's the execution that's hard. Welcome back to another episode of Ad Watchers, NAD's podcast that gives a view into how our organization reviews claims and applies advertising law. If you missed any of our previous episodes, don't forget to check them out later. They're available wherever you're listening to this one. Hey, Hal. Hey, Latoya. So what are we talking about today? So today we're going to be talking about health claims, any sort of advertising claims related to health or wellness, um, human health, right? Um, And so, you know, health claims sort of have a special place in advertising claim substantiation. Uh, And, you know, all advertising claims need a reasonable basis, but when it comes to health claims, a reasonable basis means competent and reliable scientific evidence. That is sort of the the buzzword for health claims, uh, sometimes shortened as CARS. I, I usually say it all out. Um, but so so the FTC sort of defines that uh, CARS or competent, reliable scientific evidence as tests, analyses, research, studies, or other evidence based on the expertise of professionals in the relevant area that have been conducted and evaluated in an objective manner by persons qualified to do so using procedures generally accepted in the profession to yield accurate and reliable results. It's quite a mouthful, Latoya. Yeah, that's that's a really long sentence. Um, <laughs> at NED, you know, we boiled that big mouthful down to another big mouthful um, because when we're talking about CARS, that usually means human clinical trials on the actual product that's being advertised that are methodologically sound, meaning they're double blind, placebo controlled and randomized, and that have statistically significant to the 95th percent confidence level um, results that are consumer meaningful and relate directly to the promised performance benefits. All of that is to say, you know, the idea is to have results that actually reflect how the product will work in practice. Um, But let's see if we can break that down a little bit more. And how can you walk us through the basic elements of NAD standard? Sure. So, you know, if we're talking about human health, claims about human health, studies or evidence should be about how a product benefit works in humans. You know, in vitro or animal studies on their own are probably not going to be sufficient. Uh, There should be a good reason if you are going to not have like an actual study on humans as to why evidence uh, is sort of transferable to that benefit for humans, right? Like there are sometimes some uh, examples where you wouldn't necessarily test something on a person, uh, but that you know, there has to be a really good reason why the evidence uh, 
says that the product will do what it says it does in a person. Uh, and, and there kind of has to be a scientific consensus, right? Like what you what, what the FTC standard talks about is it's about the scientific consensus in the field, right? What experts in the field agree upon. And so if there's some sort of deviation from human testing for human claims, uh, then there better be some pretty clear uh, agreement in the field that this kind of evidence is sufficient to make this kind of claim. You also talked about methodologically sound, and there's a few sort of standards, right? Placebo-controlled. That's just sort of the gold standard, uh, I think, among scientists for 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 making sure that a study accurately measures a benefit that's being caused by the test product. Um, randomization, also sort of standard scientific practice here. Uh, you don't want lopsided study groups with different, um, you know, where, where a product could work differently in the placebo group or the control group versus in the, the, the test group. And blinding is also an important control against bias uh, in study results. And if you can blind the products in a, in a study to make competent, reliable scientific evidence, uh, it should be done. You also talk about statistical significance and meaningful results. So, you know, p-values, statistical significance, of less than 0.05 or the you know confidence to the 95th percentile it's what scientists and statisticians have established as the standard for uh, results that are sufficiently reliable um but significance statistical significance isn't sufficient those results also have to mean something for people right you can study a measure that uh that has that sort of confidence uh, in, in the results, but if that's not tied to the benefit that humans see, feel, or are are going to expect from the claim, then the results are not meaningful support for that claim. Right. And anytime you know we're talking about what is you know what makes a good study, what we are looking for, you know, it's good to to remind the audience that. Again, any of these, we're not trying to take the place of scientists or get ahead of scientists and experts in the field. Um, we're not trying to define what is or is not good science. We're trying to determine if studies meet certain established scientific standards and whether they're a good fit as support for advertising claims. You know, this goes back all the way to our first episode. I know you guys remember it, you know, as though it was yesterday. You know, we don't make or set standards. We're just, you know, looking to make sure that advertisers are meeting standards and that those standards um, are able to ensure that the advertising claims that are, are put forth to consumers are um, truthful and not misleading. Yeah. And, you know, good science or, you know, is sometimes in flux. It's not, you know, uh, science evolves and changes. And so, you know, it behooves us and it behooves the parties that present substantiation evidence and competent, reliable scientific substantiation evidence to us in a in a, an NAD proceeding to explain why science is good science or not necessarily meeting standards set by the scientific community. Um, you know, I, I think a lot about this sort of interesting statement put out by the American Statistical Association, Statisticians Association a few years ago, 
where it was talking about statistical significance. And, you know, this 0.05 p-value has sort of been uh, up on a pedestal for a long time when it comes to what makes quote-unquote good science. And they sort of pointed out, uh, no, that's not the only indicator of good science. Good science is about, and, and good results and reliable results from a scientific study require um, all sorts of other factors. And that alone isn't uh, the the answer, right? Uh, you need more. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like that statement sort of made a little bit of a stir and didn't necessarily change anything, right, Latoya? <laughs> Right. Yeah. Some people, you know, we saw reactions that ran the gamut and some people thought, oh, okay, great. That means if I reach a 0.1 p-value, you know, that's good enough too, as though um, the statement was intended to kind of lower the standard. Um, you know, to me, it seemed to say, you know, otherwise, like you can't just rest on a 0.05 p-value, like maybe in some circumstances you need to, you know, go higher than that. But, you know, kind of either way, things, you know, in practice, particularly here at the NAD, haven't really changed, you know. The p-value being less than 0.05 still remains the consensus. Um, it still appears to be the standard bearer. We're not seeing experts that are coming to NAD challenge it. So it's just, again, another thing to keep in mind and um, evaluate when you're uh, doing study support and uh, claim substantiation. Yeah, so, you know, the science seemed to be in flux for a bit, but it actually didn't change. The The consensus of experts in the field didn't, in the end, change. But I think sort of one point about that statement and, and the whole I idea of, of what they were trying to say in the first place is a good way of thinking about how we approach studies, right? Um, there's not any one indicator of what a good study is. There's no one aspect that you can hang your hat on and say, we're good. Um, that being said, there's also not necessarily something that just, yeah, it, th there's often ways to explain the reasons for deviation from whatever the gold standard might be, albeit those deviations might be hard to, to justify. So, um, you know, I think what we're hoping to do, LaToya, and I think what we should try and do now is talk to our audience and kind of give them some points on what we think about when we think about what makes a good study. Um, there's like a memoir, like what I think about when I think about, what, what I talk about when I talk about running, you know, um, I think it's uh, Murakami, he's the, the, the Japanese fiction writer. So, you know, what do we think about? What do we talk about when we talk about what makes a good study? <laughs> okay, yeah, let's let's go through some of the things that we think about. Um, you know, the one that I'm going to start with should be a, a no-brainer, you know, being that we are a consumer protection-focused organization, it should be no surprise that, you know, kind of the first thing we're looking closely at is the consumer, consumer meaningful results part of this um, review. And what we mean by that is the results of a study have to have meaning outside of the lab. You know, there's some instances where we get advertisers before us where they've shown a, a statistically significant measurable difference between their product and their competitor's product. And 
it's something that just makes no difference in real life. You know, um, uh, one example is that we've had cases involving air fresheners um, where the advertiser claims that their product performs better by like dispersing more evenly or filling the room with fragrance better in comparison to their competitors. And that uh, claim would be based on instrument testing, very, very sensitive instrument testing that's, you know, showing the differences in microns of fragrances in this corner versus that corner. Um, but what that testing fails to show is that consumers can smell the difference sometimes, you know, like if you are an actual person standing in one corner of the room, your nose may just not be sensitive enough to, you know, discern these microns of difference, you know, it might be there, it might be statistically significant, but if most people just can't tell the difference, you know, that's not a a consumer relevant claim. Another example that we see frequently, particularly for dietary supplements, is where the advertiser's um, claim is describing its product on some internal metabolic parameter. You know, it, it boosts some nutrient in the body or it boosts the absorption rate of something that is an ingredient in their product. But that on its own is not enough to demonstrate that there'll be a, a corresponding health effect, you know, that because you have this, you know, more nutrients, you'll get whatever good thing that having more nutrients um, is, is feasibly associated with. You, you have to do more to connect the dots to make sure, you know, you're, you boosting this particular nutrient is going to actually make a difference on your health. That is such a frequent point that we see. I, I, I think that's that's a good lead off because it's I think maybe the most important thing that that you know we're talking about today. Um, I I have a sort of a more nuanced thing I think that I, I think about also, uh, not more nuanced but you know uh, more nitty gritty uh, detail which is p-hacking you know i don't want to accuse anyone of p-hacking uh but p-hacking is sort of the phrase that is used in the scientific community where a study is designed to get that 0.05 percent statistical significant result on something right and that the study design is what allows the result to, to show up more so than the actual benefit and the reliability of the test itself to, 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 to capture the real benefits of the product, right? So, you know, if you're thinking about statistical significance and confidence levels, if I throw 20 darts and one hits the bullseye and 19 miss the board, the bullseye is not the reliable indicator of my aim, right? Now, you're going to hit the bullseye one out of 20 times. That's, you know, that's the one outlier. But if you're throwing 20 darts in the same study, <laughs> you know, getting that one result isn't necessarily um, accurate. Um, it's not really the, the point here. It's a, that's a bit of an oversimplification, and this is a complicated sort of statistical uh, concept. But I, I think we've seen cases where there's 
study evidence presented in support of a health claim that has like multiple endpoints in various test groups and sub-analyses of uh, parts of test groups. And most of the results are not significant, or statistically significant, uh, let alone consumer meaningful, which is sort of, it's the next level of analysis that's, that's even more important, right? Um, but then, you know, there's one factor in one test group and the results are significant. And then an advertiser holds up that study and says, look, we have statistically significant results. Great. We can make our claim. And, you know, that's not how we look at evidence. Um, maybe there's a very narrow claim there available to you. But in truth, we try and look at the totality of the evidence in the record and the totality of the evidence out there. Um, and, and we really read the studies. We, we go in, we look at the, the study authors. If it's a published study, we look at the study author's analysis of their own results. Um, we'll apply the standards that we understand to be the experts in the fields, which is scientists and statisticians, to determine the reliability of a study for any particular claim. So just because you have a published study, just because there's a statistically significant result in that uh, study, doesn't mean it's going to be enough because we need to, we're really going to do a reliability check separate from, from just like having that, that p-value on, on, on one metric. Exactly. You know, you know, but like you said, we're not accusing anyone of anything, um, but you know, especially studies that are independent, um, you know, who knows what the researchers are trying to do. They're just trying to get published, you know, sometimes they want to have a good outcome. And if that requires, you know, kind of chopping up their results to get to something interesting and something reliable, you know, then that's on them. But it just means, you know, maybe you're, maybe that study's not great for claim substantiation. Um, another thing that we look at is the population of the study, which I think sometimes, you know, kind of gets overlooked um, and people don't realize that NAD really does consider that and, and look at it closely. Simply put, the people that were studied should match the people that are the target of the advertising. Um, for a dietary supplement, for example, you shouldn't conduct a study um, on elite athletes if the claim that you're making is directed to the general population. You know, there are going to be significant differences between those two populations in their diet and their lifestyle and their exercise habits, all of which we know will have an effect on how that product works. A recent case where the population um, came up was a case that we had about an aspirin product that was intended for people who needed to be on a uh, regular aspirin regimen in order to protect against a second heart attack, something that's you know well-known and well-established, and it was about the product's efficacy um, in this, this area. And some of the testing that the advertiser provided was conducted not on people with heart disease, but on a diabetic obese population with no history of heart disease. So NAD had to assess whether, you know, that was the correct or appropriate popula population when, you know, reviewing whether the claim represented the typical consumer that would use the product. This was an interesting case because 
the advertiser was able to establish this was the appropriate population because first, you know, the, the people that this product is intended to treat or intended to be advertised to are people with heart disease. So you can't really take them off <laughs> their medicine in order to create, a, you know, a, a control group or give them a placebo or try a product that, you know, could possibly not work as well as what they're already taking. You know, there's just lots of ethical issues there. So um, the advertiser through its experts was able to establish that, oh, an obese population um, that was diabetic did have um, substantially similar markers as a person who um, had continuing heart disease. And that the results that were taken from that population could be um, extrapolated to, you know, the target advertising. So we were able to allow a qualified claim. We, we did want to disclose, you know, correctly who had been tested, but the claim itself, you know, we found substantiated and could be made because um, of those similarities between the populations. That's such an interesting point, both on population, but also just on presenting scientific evidence in support of advertising claims and how it really does track experts in the field as opposed to just sort of any sort of, you know, strict guidelines, right? There are, there are instances, you know, not often, but there are certainly instances where what is sort of presumed to be the standard for what reaches a level of competent, reliable scientific evidence isn't possible. And it's based on what experts say, what the, the, the professionals in the field say is the proper uh, workaround to, to, to prove certain kinds of claims, um, not on us to make that judgment call, right? And so, you know, a little sneak peek on a tip, again, we don't, before we get to the end, is if you are going to deviate from what we might otherwise think of as a competent, reliable scientific study, you really need to have the experts in the field, not just one expert. Well, you know, we don't, the experts in the field um, talk about why it's, it's different uh, and why this is sort of the standard practice in, in the field. Um, another thing that I, I think about oftentimes, and I think this comes up a lot, is placebos um, and, and the role of placebos in scientific studies. The placebo effect is is real, um, and there's a reason why placebo groups and placebo controls are important when you're trying to support a health claim. Because there, I mean, we see it in the studies. There are effects, and there are changes when people take a placebo. It, it's still, you know, you know, there there there's there there is that effect. Whether it's the effect of someone watching themselves closer while they're during doing a clinical trial, or some sort of other, you know, perceived benefit or some other way in which, you know, just taking a pill and, and you know, makes, makes it different. I don't know. There, there's all different kinds of ways in which um, a placebo control group will make a study more reliable. So it, it's important to have a placebo control group if you can in your study. That being said, you also have to use it. Um, <laughs> A lot of times we see studies um, where they have a placebo group and there is, you know, or some other sort of negative control group that's supposed to be showing that there's no effect 
other than the effect of the test product itself, right? Um, but then they don't compare the benefit of the test group to the records and, and, and what was happened in the placebo group. They compare them both to baseline. And, and that's not necessarily the way we expect to see it. And I don't think that's standard standard in the field from, from, from experts. Um, if you have a placebo group, you sort of subtract that away from the effect of the test group. And that's the, the measure that should be statistically significant, not the comparison against baseline um, for your test group. And so if you have a placebo group, use it in analyzing your data and determining if it's significant. Um, we look closely at placebo groups. We look closely at the types of placebos using uh, that you use. Um, if your placebo doesn't actually provide the sort of benefit, um, you know, it does, doesn't actually control, like if it's di so different from the test group that it's not actually controlling for, for the test for the test results, then then that's going to be a problem also. So so we look closely at both the type of placebo and more importantly that you actually use it when analyzing your data. So I think that that kind of placebo group usage is is, is something we really pay a lot of attention to. Right, and I think that's why um, it's so important when you're you're looking at your study design to not treat. Um, this is like a, just like a checklist. Like it's not, you know, enough to just say, well, we have a placebo. You know, you have to think about the way that you're using it. Like you said, Hal, and, you know, are you using it correctly? Is it doing its role um, in the study and not just kind of thinking, okay, well, it's, it's, there's a placebo. And so now, you know, I've, I've checked something off and I can move on. Um, I think this next point that we look at, I think is very similar. And it's about, you know, the use of experts in establishing scientific consensus. You know, the CAR standard refers to, you know, tests and studies and et cetera, using procedures generally accepted in the profession, which is, you know, we kind of, you know, take a scientific consensus on um, what's appropriate. And we have so many cases where one of the parties comes in and has an expert and they just say, you know, this is the standard. This is how things are done. This is what the science is supposed to be in this area. And an expert saying this thing or giving this opinion that's supportive of your position is not enough for scientific consensus. You know, just having expert opinions or their reports on an issue alone is not a substitute for competent and reliable scientific evidence. You know, that's directly coming from the FDA, which has said in guidance that, you know, the opinion of a single scientist or a small group of scientists is not adequate substantiation for a health-related claim. You need to have both that opinion coupled with objective evidence supporting that expert's opinion. And that's what we are looking for at NAD, you know, um, just because, you know, sometimes there can be differences of opinions. And so we want to know which opinion actually represents, you know, kind of the general consensus, what are what is generally accepted, not just what one expert thinks. 
Um, this is very similar to issues that are raised with reviews of the Daubert standard in court, you know, kind of evaluating what an expert's um, expertise lies in and how they are, um, how their opinions line up with other experts in the field. So this is, it's nothing new. Um, it's a really familiar principle, but yet we see it come up all the time in cases where we have an expert and it's just, his opinion is completely different. His or her opinion is completely different than, you know, kind of what the general consensus is. And, and that's not enough to overcome that burden. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, it's very important. And it, it, it's frankly not an easy analysis for us to do at NAD, but we do do it. And one thing I, I, I sometimes see is, you know, the expert, says this is the standard this is this is the result this is why it's uh you know sufficient to support our advertising claim and then they'll also present studies and the studies will use a different methodology they'll have different results they'll 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 say something different in the published study results than the experts said themselves or or it'll just be not consistent even if it's not directly opposing to what the expert said and it's you know, we say, but but what about the study you showed me? Like that said something different. And you know, we're gonna dig in. We're gonna look, and we're gonna ask questions. We're not just gonna accept. You know, listen, expert evidence and is very important in our forum. I think we want you to bring your experts. We want them to explain to us the mechanisms of your product. We want them to explain us the studies that you're submitting. Explain to us the studies that you're submitting, and we also want them to talk to us about consensus in the field um, and why their opinion isn't an outlier and why and and why it's it's sort of the standard practice and, but they also have to show it to us right um, and so to the extent that, that your experts can show us that and can um, and, and can can talk about that specifically why it's not just their opinion uh, I think that's an important part of of determining if expert opinion is competent, reliable scientific evidence. There's sort of one other piece that I wanted to touch on before we sort of come back to Latoya for one more and 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 then close out. There's something uh, this, the the way that that scientific studies are designed um, can sometimes have tension with consumer meaningfulness because studies, scientific studies, are often designed with reliability and accuracy in mind getting results that uh, uh you know that, that that they can rely on as as reliable so i'm thinking you know th there's oftentimes a study of let's say a medication or a health intervention you can keep your patient or the, the the study the study participants in the hospital setting for monitoring so you can really get good data on what's happening to that person but then that's not necessarily relevant if the product isn't used in a hospital, right? Maybe consumers are behaving differently. Maybe they're reacting differently because they have access to um, healthcare providers on a regular basis. But then let's say you do the same study except it's at home. Well, maybe you can't rely on the information as well because it's self-reporting. Um, but then it's very accurate to how they'd use their product in their everyday lives, right? So there's this give and take in making sure that your study has reliable results in um, good data and ensuring that it's consumer meaningful. And 
there's not really always the right answer or a good answer um, from our perspective on making sure that your claim is talking about consumer meaningful results and making sure your study is reliable. Um, and so, so we're, we're very cognizant of that, right? We're cognizant of this sort of natural tension in data reliability and, and consumer meaningfulness. And it's things like that that we definitely want to hear from experts about, right? Because there, that's something that, that, that scientists think about too uh, when, when they're designing their studies, right? And so um, it's important for, for, the, for us to look to and to be able to look to experts in the field to determine what is standard practice for this particular type of study, right? Um, what is appropriate for this intervention? And to, have, and, and, and to make sure that the study has solid reasoning for its design, for choosing sort of leaning maybe in the side of more reliable data or leaning more to the, the side of consumer relevance. Um, and, and I think, you know, there's never really a right or answer necessarily, but the choices need to be considered and thoughtful and the claims should be reflecting the, the evidence um, and, and the study if, if it can. Yeah, you know, um, I think that's a really good sort of way to to pull it all together, you know, that there are all these different things to look for, and then, you know, it has to be ex executed in a manner um, that works for your product and works for the claim that you're going to make. And I think I just wanted to end with one kind of unifying point that, you know, after you've done all this work and you've thought about your placebo and how you're using it in your population and the results that you, you know, want to get and, and whether they're meaningful, um, and you pull together a study that you really feel meets the competent and reliable scientific evidence that, uh, standard, the one thing you don't want to do is to craft a claim that gets beyond your science, that you've got this great study um, but then your claim, you know, exceeds what you've actually been able to demonstrate and show in that study. We often see advertisers with products that, you know, incorporate a really legitimate innovation, but the claim that they end up making doesn't really fit with it because maybe it's based on, you know, the marketing team's idea of what will like resonate with consumers or it makes a you know logical leap to a next valuable secondary benefit that hasn't been demonstrated um it makes me think of this old south park episode that involved these gnomes stealing underpants and you know the kids were asking you know why are you stealing underpants and they showed that their plan was step one steal underpants step two they didn't know. Step three, profit. So they're just like, we got to, you know, fill in that pesky step two in order to, you know, get to step three. But we know that that's where we're going. That's my way of <laughs> reminding the audience, you know, don't forget that every step in the chain needs to be properly supported. Just because you've, you know, established step one and you've demonstrated something doesn't mean you get to skip to step three and, you know, kind of make a claim that, you know, you, you haven't properly supported if you haven't figured out step two. 
I feel like we can make a meme of that uh, <laughs> South Park. They have like a chart in that episode, right? Yes, yes. And it's like question marks. <laughs> we could just make a meme. <laughs> Whatever. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I mean that's 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 a very important point, and it kind of you know that's sort of where I think we do sort of step out of the scientist shoes and start stepping into the NAD attorney role of evaluating claims on behalf of consumers, right? Um, that's an advertising issue, right? And and that's something I think we do sort of do more of um, because it's it's about the good fit. We always talk about a good fit, and, and I think that's particularly important here. So I think we've given a lot to the listeners about designing studies that meet competent, reliable scientific evidence standards and using those studies in appropriate ways. But in addition to all that, is there anything else that you see as like a key takeaway from, uh, from for, for listeners when they are considering how we think about competent, reliable scientific evidence? I mean, honestly, I hope that everything we've talked about is a key takeaway because there are just so many different aspects of study design that you know can affect the overall reliability and appropriateness of a study. And just all of these points we've made are pretty important. But yes, I can I can come up with another point um, that our listeners should be thinking about, um, and this is that the analysis that we've been talking about for claim substantiation is step is separate from any other uh, meeting of regulatory requirements. You know, many products that are in the health and wellness space, particularly, are subject to the regulations of the FDA, EPA, and just, you know, other government regulatory bodies. And again, like we said in that first episode, we don't enforce those rules. You know, you can be complying with regulatory requirements, but that's the first step. You still have to ensure that your advertising claims, including those that might be on a product label and uh, packaging, are truthful and accurate. And that's separate from just, you know, meeting a regulatory requirement and thinking, you know, kind of you're done. On the flip side, if your product is not regulated, that doesn't mean you have free reign to make you know, any and all advertising claims. Again, all claims must be truthful and not misleading. Absolutely. So you know, let's say you have a medical device and you got 510K clearance from the FDA. That's not a panacea so that you can just make all kinds of health claims about what your product does for consumers. You still need competent, reliable scientific evidence that the device provides the health benefit that you're claiming. And, you know, I think that's that's sort of the whole kit and caboodle here, LaToya. Um, if advertisers follow what we talked about today and, and take it into consideration when they're developing their health claims, um, I think they'll be in a much better place uh, regarding uh, their claim support. Absolutely. So I think that's all for today. Thank you again for tuning into this episode and for uh, joining us on this first season of The Ad Watchers. This is our last episode. I know, LaToya, it's our, our final episode of the season. I've had so much fun recording this with you and uh, hopefully provided lots of you know, useful information for our listeners. There will, 
I believe, via season two of Ad Watchers in 2022. So keep your podcast feeds open or however that works. That's not my part of the podcast game. Um, as always, you can head over to our website, bbbprograms.org, to learn more about what we do at the National Advertising Division or any of our other self-regulatory programs. And that's all for this episode. Latoya, bye for now and uh, talk to you again, at least in front of our audience, uh, next year. Yes. See you next year, Hal. <laughs> <laughs>